0: Communications using an encrypted messaging app, decrypted by an international criminal investigation, leads to the arrest of at least 800 individuals. Professor Bashir breaks down the operation and privacy concerns around the sting. This is The Legal Impact, a weekly podcast presented by the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Now accepting applications for JD graduate programs and online professional certificates. Learn more and apply at law.unh.edu. Being discussed is solely the opinion of the fact that your hosts do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. So, Buzz, the scope of this operation is pretty mind blowing. From both the pri- privacy, yeah, from the privacy implications and the sheer volume of people apprehended or part of this. Uh, I mean, what what did law enforcement manage to do with this? There
1: was a Canadian-based. Let's go back a few years. So there was a, a Canadian-based encryption service that had been used by any number of criminal syndicates. Uh, around the world, and uh, they dis uh, the law enforcement several years ago dismantled it. It wasn't it, it wasn't there. They hadn't built it. They did, but they they got onto it and they dismantled it. They then recruited uh, one of the distributors for that system. That system was called Phantom Secure. They recruited one of the distributors for Phantom Secure. What Phantom Secure would do is they were selling encrypted cell phones with this encrypted system on them to criminal syndicates around the country, around the world, excuse me, over 100 countries. They shut that down and then uh, they recruited this guy uh, in return for they paid him 120,000 bucks and in return for him getting a potentially getting a lighter sentence. He built a new he was in the process of building a new system anyway called Anom, A-N-O-M. So he built that system and it basically it became a law enforcement system. It was their system. They ran it and they owned it. And so they would be selling these specialized encrypted cell phones to. Uh, I think over the course of the last three years, they've sold like twelve thousand of them wow. to you know uh, in people in over a hundred countries. Um, but it wasn't like what's so interesting about it from a Fourth Amendment privacy perspective, which is just one of the angles here, is that. It wasn't that they invaded somebody else's system. They built their own system and then basically, quote unquote, invited people to join for a feat. Which is something that's
0: basically not possible except for with modern technology where you can have something decentralized where units can talk to each other from across the globe.
1: Right. I mean, the value of it was they could have these very open conversations about criminal activity of all sorts, drug trafficking, money laundering, murder, you know, high level corruption. And that's the kind of thing they 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 act, they are able to law enforcement was able to access over 20 million messages on these systems. Um, so it's a you know, it's a huge. Data management problem for law enforcement, and my understanding is, although it's a little unclear because these are kept uh, confidential and secure, but they had FISA, the Foreign Intelligence uh, Act, warrants to to do run this system. There's probably you know there'll be some interesting Fourth Amendment challenges to it in terms of privacy. But you know, as if uh, you were to hypothetically, you were to open a store in downtown Concord and start illegally selling weapons, and you were a police officer, you know, and you were illegally selling weapons to, you know, all the criminal gangs in in New Hampshire. You know, that's different than you tapping. Uh, the cell phones of those criminal gangs.
0: Yeah, it's really fascinating um, that it's an entirely different take on phone tapping, where basically they, the government was owning the whole infrastructure that was being used. I mean, like I was kind of talking about before, it's like before you had to talk to the telephone companies, the telco industry to be able to gain access to records, which... Had to get a
1: search warrant very yeah. often. So it's, in that sense, it's really, uh, really interesting. Interesting. Uh, At at another level, you know, they may well, uh, some of the people may well try entrapment defenses. You know, they were lured into this system. You know, that's a possibility. I mean, the difficulty with that is going to be, at least in this country, entrapment defenses uh, involve talking somebody into doing something who was otherwise predisposed not to engage in that kind of behavior. So that last phrase, otherwise predisposed, that's going to be you know that's going to be the challenge for people raising that defense. Independent of this, you think about international criminal law and transnational crime, which this is a really uh, a really fascinating version of, uh, and it raises you know it involves charges were brought in over 25 countries. You know there are a host of different criminal legal systems around the world and much of the pros- they're in the next phase of prosecuting people arresting people prosecuting people and there's this going to be this really complex network of sending cases through different criminal legal systems there's you know loosely three or four major criminal legal systems around the world that operate differently. And there's going to be, you know, uh, there's going to be evidence exchanged by the Australian police or the Swedish police law enforcement or the Italian law enforcement with the US, with Canada. Uh, And those are all different legal systems. And there are, to some extent, treaties in place that take care of evidence sharing there are there's going to be extradition issues uh, uh, because I'm sure some of the people charged for example in the United States do not live in the United States uh, and actually engaged in no actual conduct physical conduct in the United States uh, but are charged in the United States so can you extradite, uh, are, are those people living in countries with extradition treaties with the United States? Then there's the jurisdictional issue, which I already kind of referred to. That is, can the, to what extent can the U.S. charge somebody who committed a crime while living in another country uh, that had implicated in some fashion United, the United States or United States institutions? you know and that's a that's a very interesting jurisdictional question uh that depends on the statute depends on the crime depends on on how the statute reads does it does it contemplate out loud trans uh trans jurisdictional or transnational charging um, so that's you know interesting to be shameless uh, in promoting our international criminal justice program, our ICLJ program. That's what our program is all about. It's about all these layers of issues that the complex issues that come with prosecuting transnational crime at all these different levels. You know, does the Fourth Amendment apply when the conduct occurred outside? It, it occurred online and the individual was living in Sweden or Italy. You know, it's really fascinating uh, stuff, uh, but it's a, you know, it's a really, I guess I would say it's a really bold effort on the part of law enforcement to you know, step fully into the, you know, the developing, changing, and really new and different world of prosecuting transnational crime. And it's a, you know, it's a remarkable case in that way.
0: Yeah, I mean, how? What's what's really interesting about this? I mean, I feel like I usually hear things in the world of health being initiated by a larger. Power like the like the United States with regards to we're going to take the lead and we're going to force other countries to do to to really get implicated into what we're doing because we think this is important whether it's through the markets or something to that that effect it's really fascinating to see something the United States really taking the lead in something that's there's huge implications across the world with with this case these cases and. It, I feel like a lot of these people that are going to be have charges brought against them are going to be in big trouble, no matter what, because they're most likely there's going to be one of these countries are going to want to find them, arrest them, or bring them to court.
1: Yeah, and and what's so fascinating about it is. It's not as if the U.S. will be telling everybody what to do because everybody's operating in different legal systems. So, you know, it's 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 a matter of all the countries forging uh, cooperative agreements about how to process this stuff and exchange it. I mean, there's this structure in place of of treaties and executive orders and, exec- and, and agreements uh, between countries to deal with this kind of stuff. But this is incredibly sophisticated. When most of those treaties or uh, agreements on evidence sharing or statutes were passed by individual countries, this kind of cyber prosecution really is, prosecution involving cyber evidence That's really what it is. The conduct itself was run-of-the-mill drug trafficking, et cetera, money laundering. But essence of it is uh, cyber evidence. It's emails and text messages. It involves a lot of cooperation.
0: Now, say in theory, there's an issue when it comes to the Fourth Amendment. This, if there's a problem with how it's handled in the United States, because the United States are the the creators of this technology, will that matter in other countries? Will or will they have that data, the evidence, regardless?
1: I'll give you the uh, the accurate and pretty useless answer, which okay. is it depends. Okay. You know, it's really going to depend on what statute there be, might be prosecuted under in that country uh, and what the rules are for using this particular type of evidence in that country and what equivalent provisions they might have to the Fourth Amendment in that country. For example, in Europe, uh, at least privacy when it involves commercial entities is much more aggressively and highly regulated Uh, UNDER THE EU, THE GDPR uh, REGULATIONS, THAN IT IS IN THE UNITED STATES. BUT THAT'S NOT GOING TO OPERATE IN THIS REALM. I'M NOT COMPLETELY FAMILIAR WITH HOW, uh, YOU KNOW, WHAT FOURTH AMENDMENT EQUIVALENTS THEY HAVE IN ALL THE DIFFERENT COUNTRIES uh, WE'RE TALKING ABOUT. SO IT'LL BE, WITHIN EACH COUNTRY, IT'LL BE
0: COMPLEX. and. Transnationally, it'll be complex too. Do you have any predictions on how? I mean, criminal operations are still going to operate; I mean, they're, they're not going anywhere. But this is obviously going to, in theory, make them want to innovate in some other way to work around the fact that hey, we were nailed pretty intensely by by an app right. that we were directly sold. And they will. I mean, the, uh, criminal in these larger criminal
1: enterprises that are involved in this kind of stuff. They've been engaging in, you know, they've had very sophisticated communication systems in place. Uh, they've been ahead of the curve uh, in, in, you know, as compared to law enforcement over the last 10 years or so. Uh, this is a step forward for law enforcement. But, you know, likely what's going to happen is they're going to go back to being small. You know, they're not going to use a big, quote unquote, service like this. They're going to each have their own person who builds their own little encrypted system, and it's just going to be theirs. They're not going to, that'll they'll, they'll be a, the pendulum will swing back to that rather than having this, this huge service available.
0: Which is good because ultimately if you can't have that international cooperation over the complexity of what these guys are trying to do under the table here, this is a huge win for law enforcement.
1: At least for now. you know, It's always been the case that just like every other legal enterprise that is successful, criminal enterprises – The good ones and the ones that lack the good ones, the effective ones, (laughs) uh, the ones that last are the ones that adapt and do the next thing. I'm sure that's already that transition, that evolution is already occurring. We go back to, quote unquote, the good old days when we didn't have any of this and we just had a a drug distribution enterprise, you know, Um, and then the or an organized crime enterprise. And once uh, once the police broke it up, somebody else filled the vacuum.
0: Thanks for listening to The Legal Impact presented by UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. To help us a reward about the show, please be sure to subscribe and comment on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.